I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Martin Savictor. And I'm Isabelle Rasco, and this is Seat at the Table. And this season, we're focusing on the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, the urgency of this moment, and how to move forward. And you know, Martine, when it comes to moving forward, many people bring up defunding the police mm-hmm. and abolition. So we're going to take a moment to really understand what they mean. It's about actually a radical transformation that would think about public safety in a way that doesn't rely on police, that doesn't rely on prisons, but actually gets to uh, what the, the heart of those inequalities in the first place. But before we get to that, we can have a season about the power of Black Lives Matter without speaking to a BLM activist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, Isabel, but I feel more compelled by the movement today than I, than I was when I was first exposed to it three years ago. I, I saw it more as something marginal. Um, you know, I applauded its existence and I, I supported it from far. But I can't say that, you know, I adhere to the movement like I do today. Yeah, I'm a bit like you. I think that back then I felt that it was really something that was happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel the necessity here, oddly. Mm -hmm. So it's never been as pertinent as it is today and as needed. Mm -hmm. Just this summer, listen to this. The Black Lives Matter protests were held in 4,300 cities around the world. Every province in Canada held protests against police brutality. Mm-hmm. And you know what's very... Um, one of the protests was held in Trois-Rivières, which is in Quebec, which is where I was born, always being the... Did the you o- start it? No, oh, but okay. always being the, the only black kid. It's, it's, it's you know, it, there's not a lot of diversity. And they held a protest and, and that really, you know, brought tears to my eyes. And changes have already taken place. Look at the cities and the governments finally recognizing the existence of systemic racism. And we'll get to those who don't another time. (laughs) Uh, The corporate world has been reacting, not only reacting, but also pledging to be more inclusive and diverse. The media starting to realize that changes are necessary. Uh And, you know, you see it in in the the stories that are covered, how these stories are covered and also by whom. You and I had... Many talks about that. Yeah, that is that is the genesis of the season two. Uh, absolutely, you educated me so much on that. Really? <laughs> well, you know who else educated us? Who? Gail King, because Gail had this very poignant moment live on TV where she broke down, and you know, this is when you and I realized that you know something's something's moving, something's changing. Yeah, and when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, it's really impressive. And every time I see them, I wonder, you know, how are these activists, mm. you know, feeling? What's going through their minds? Mm-hmm. It has to be exhausting. They surely have made great sacrifices. And are they hopeful? Because yeah. you and I have hope, yeah. but we're not on the ground every day. We That's don't it. see the numbers every day. We don't get the reactions every day. What about them? I know. So that's why we're checking in with Sandy Hudson. She is actually credited as the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada. And uh, Martine, it's amazing because this huge movement all started 
with a conversation she had with her brother back in 2014. Yeah, and 2014 is around the time Michael Brown was killed in That's Ferguson. Right. And remember, uh, German Carby was killed in Brampton at the hand of police. Yep. But there were no events planned in Toronto to protest the police brutality. So Sandy's brother challenged her to organize one. And that's what it was supposed to be one event. And look at four mm-hmm. years later. Sandy started hosting her own podcast called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. And she's also the co-editor of Until We Are Free Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. And she joins us from L.A. where she's currently a law student at UCLA, as if she had a lot of time on her hands. So fancy. (laughs) So welcome to Seat at the Table, Sandy. Thanks for having me. What a journey it has been for you since 2014. I mean, it's amazing to think that the very first Black Lives Matter presence in Canada began with a conversation between your brother and you. And now BLM is a household term. Uh, So much Mm -hmm. has sprung from this movement, including, I should say, this season of our podcast. So, you know, I, I want you to tell us what you personally had to sacrifice to get to this moment right now. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. There's been so much uh, sacrifice. I, you know, there's just a great sense of responsibility. Um, You know, now that I have developed all of these skills uh, that I know can really help to shift and change our culture. And that does mean, you know, giving up on nights of sleep, Mm. giving up on, uh, you know, time that I would like to Uh, spend with myself or, you know, developing skills uh, for my career or something different. Um, But unfortunately, you know, um, as people often talk about racism is such a distraction, it can really, Mm -hmm. it can really take you away from um, all the other things that you might be meant to be doing. Hmm. You've said this fight, Sandy, takes every piece of you and you just mentioned that you feel you, there's a great sense of responsibility that comes with the position you now have to as an advocate. Do you sometimes, does it sometimes feel like a burden? Yeah, I think it does. It depends day to day. I remember having a really low point, uh, I think in 2017, maybe 2016. And um, uh, I was in a panel with Angela Davis and she she was like, don't forget to find the joy in this because there is and there there is there's lots of joy that comes with it, too. But, uh, you know, it can it can really feel uh, very, very burdensome and it can be really hard, especially when a lot of, uh, you know, we'll get white supremacists who who try to target us online. We get terrible emails uh, sent directly to our inboxes and pushed directly to our phones every day. It can be really difficult. So how does it feel right now when you look at the numbers, you know, 4,300 cities across the world have had BLM protests. Uh, Every city in Canada has held one. How, How are you feeling right now? I mean, and that's what makes it worth it. Right. Like that's that is what tells me that like, okay, this is all all the burden, all of the difficulty of this is going to result in something and already has. It's so inspiring. It just Mm. feels uh, incredible. We've essentially created the largest social movement the world has ever seen. Like there's never been anything like this before. Now, 
what makes me upset about that is that our politicians haven't responded in the same way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right? I know we've got to Polic- keep them accountable. Policymakers and people in power have not responded to this absolutely unprecedented wave of support for a shift in in policy. Uh, and I think that tells you something about you know uh, how anti-blackness uh, is still very much alive and well. And the fact that some politicians can't read the room properly and can't seem to seize this momentum, is that the biggest disappointment or the biggest frustration for you right now? <laughs> it's it's so hard to pick, like, a biggest frustration. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many, you know, especially when it's like, you know, these, these things have happened and, uh, you know, George Floyd, Regis Korchinski Paquette, DeAndre Campbell, you know, the names go on and still the police are acting with such impunity, like there are still continuing cases that we're seeing of police violence uh, uh, on wellness checks, uh, you know, um, just in general, uh, in their general operations. And so I think that also makes me really, really frustrated that it they don't care. Um, but also, yeah, for sure, the, the politicians and uh, the, the platitudes that we hear from some politicians, which amount to absolutely nothing, And then, I mean, you have like, uh, you know, the Liberal Party who hasn't really said anything at all. And it's like, how could you possibly get away with something like that? That just seems so. I know we have to go beyond the uh, kneeling of our prime minister. But why do you think it's still so difficult to recognize the shortcomings and injustices that we have here in Canada? Well, (laughs) where do I start? (laughs) We have time, Sandy. (laughs) Break it down for us. Uh, there's so much. I mean, I know that y'all know you're you folks are in media. And so <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone here uh, and maybe I can say it more than others. But, you know, like there's the our media landscape is very, very white and white supremacist. And, you know, they're really happy to make sure that there are people of color in front of the camera. But the people who are deciding what's news, the people who are doing Um, the producing of what can be said on the air, how certain things are going to be responded to. Um, I think that those people maybe uh, for some time did not think that this was as real a problem as we've been saying. And I think that the proof is in what happens every single time there is some sort of incident of anti-blackness that becomes uh, very widely publicized. We see the same headlines over and over and over again. Does racism exist in Canada? And it's like, how could that still be the conversation? How could that ever have been the conversation? Uh, And Sandy, I have to tell you the story that on June 2nd, I'm I'm a collaborator on the number one show in Montreal, The Morning Show. TV, you have to mention TV. Yeah, on TV, sorry. And I was scheduled to talk about, you know, what to do in your backyard because, you know, COVID, we're stuck, you know, at our house. And I... The night before, I said, I can't do this. I can't go on air and pretend everything's okay. I mean, you, there are protests mm-hmm. all around. Yeah, you, had, you had to talk about the murdered elephant in the room. Yes, mm-hmm. and I had to tell them that <laughs> I was going to change their 10 minutes on air. And if I wouldn't have raised it because I'm black and I, you know, I felt very compelled about this, it wouldn't have happened. So I hear you. I understand what you're saying. It's going to be mm-hmm. an uphill battle. Also, one of the frustration here in Quebec for me, is that you still have influential media columnists that call this present 
movement, this present upheaval, the Americanization of a problem. And they and they say, well, why are we uh, taking on this cause that is not our cause? And it's like, are you not trusting the numbers that we have this problem here? And I think this is part of the frustration. Yeah. This is part of the problem. Yeah, as as though that, that imaginary line, the 49th parallel yeah. that separates... Uh, you know, one place called the United States, one place called Canada somehow also has a wall that pre prevents all sorts of racism from getting through, mm -hmm. that prevents our shared history uh, from impacting us. Because, like, you know, like, can we be real about the history, please? Like, please, yes. Both yes. places were colonized by the British and the French. Mm. Okay? Mm. The only difference is that um, some of the people in the South turned against the the crown like mm. how do people think that that has had some sort of impact that means that the racism that uh that we see today or that has happened in the past is somehow different from that line mm -hmm. from no. that imaginary line it's ludicrous mm. and i don't think that uh, canadians are really ready to learn and understand the history because when i say to people we had segregated they better get ready they have to but they, when i say there 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 was still segregated schools in nova scotia in 1983 they're freaking out and mm -hmm. i'm like well you know this is why we, we are here right now in this situation and and also here and and i don't know about the rest of canada but i know for a fact in quebec we're still in in a position where we we have to explain why blackface is wrong And we have to explain that blackface <laughs> happened here. I mean, this is 2020, and I can't believe the, the pearl clutching is still happening when you say, <laughs> well, A, blackface is wrong, and you know it. And second, we had blackface here. I mean, yep. it's, it's, I need a drink. It's exhausting. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Sandy, come it over. Really, we'll have, really we'll get drunk with you. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? On a positive note, though, I've been talking with black community leaders in Montreal, and they feel energized thanks to BLM. And really, since the resurgence of it all, and they're receiving more funding, more people want to volunteer. I mean, is it the same thing for you guys? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, there's a way that the I think that the fact of COVID, you know, people being inside of their homes and expecting that there's just going to be this one tragedy that we're all going to hear about day in, day out um, for, well, for the foreseeable future. Mm. <laughs> and, mm. and then to see this other tragedy play out still, even when, you know, we're not supposed to be really out there in the street, even when there's only supposed to be like one major um, issue affecting us all, that still anti-blackness is able to, to cut through everything and destroy lives and i think that uh both the the starkness of that and uh the ability for people to pay attention in a way that they haven't necessarily been able to pay attention before because covid has in some ways given certain communities more time um to to pay attention to certain types of news that maybe they wouldn't have had that opportunity to do before uh i think that those two things really did shift or help to shift uh, the amount of attention that people are paying uh, to the issue in this in this current uh, moment of the movement. And in the news lately, um, Sandy, we had the death of U.S. representative and civil rights icon John Lewis 
uh, someone who represents the struggle before, you know, the past of the struggle, but also the struggle today, because some of the things he was fighting for is still st still an issue today. And mm -hmm. just before his death, he penned um, an op-ed in the New York Times, and it was published on the day of his funeral. And I saw it as a love letter to the generation of social justice activists, which you are part of, Sandy. And here's part of this op-ed, which was read by Morgan Freeman. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last, and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. It is our turn to let freedom ring. Um, Sandy, I, I, I don't know how you feel about that. I can barely speak because uh, I've heard this maybe five times already in two days. And uh, what are your thoughts when you hear the words of John Lewis? It's just so very touching. And I also, um, one of the things that I think is most important about that piece is it lays to rest um, this kind of myth that's come up a bit over the years of, you know, this generation being far removed from that generation and there being uh, no linkages uh, between us. And, you know, I want people to know that the the movements for black liberation are all very much connected. They have to be because there's never been a moment where we've been able to pause and stop any sort of movement making um, and any sort of call for justice. And his posthumous contribution here is really saying like, look, these young folks, what's happening today are still continuing my work mm -hmm. too. And I think that that is so very, very important. And, you know, people might be surprised to know, but all over the place, um, in Toronto, in Vancouver, in LA, we have elders who've been part of uh, older movements who, or I shouldn't say older movements, OG movements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That, that serve as our council, like who we regularly meet with for advice and who warn us about things that we can expect and to help us uh, through our own strategizing. And that's not to say that the movements are not different or haven't evolved. Of course they have. Um, like anything evolves and changes with time. Mm. But our movements are intergenerational and we have su such respect um, for our ancestors and our elders um, and our elders have such respect for us as well and mm. uh, I just think it was such a beautiful piece that he wrote and that he gifted to us it feels like a gift mm. and, and you speak of the linkage between generations and one one of the reasons I feel hopeful is because people who have been in this longer than I have are hopeful. And John yeah. Lewis mentioned it before he died and Spike Lee mentioned it. And mm -hmm. what they've said is they're hopeful because what they see in the in the in the protest are young people and older people and black people and white people and 
Latino people. And, and so it's the diversity. And so this linkage is also in the diversity. And you mentioned that you, you refer sometimes to the elders, to the, o, to the OG. Isabel, isn't it the same for you as you're working on a documentary? Do you not find consult and... Yeah, that's yeah. true. I was talking with a historian who's 73 years old, and he was saying, you know, um, this is probably the end of a cycle. And he sees it as the end of a cycle that started with slavery. And when he said that to me, I felt very, very happy and comforted because I'm a mother of two young kids, and I want to believe that things are actually changing as we speak. Mm. You know, and Sandy, I have to say thank you for that, because my kids who are 14 and 17 are looking at you guys, uh, you know, marching on the streets and and doing work and they're seeing that their lives matter, you know? Yeah. And that I mean, it's that sort of thing that just makes it allows me to keep going, you know, and uh, makes it makes it worth it. Mm -hmm. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. How do we keep the momentum going? What do we do, Sandy? You know, I on my podcast, I um, we had this episode at Nora and I where we talked about how we feel like we've already won because, um, you know, people people say like, ah, you know, this is just a moment. It's just a flashpoint. People are going to forget about it and move on. I don't actually, you know, there there are news cycles. Yes, there are moments where people pay more attention to one thing than another. But I think that this time has been different. I think that we have shifted culture significantly in the last three months. I have never seen people more willing to talk about um, really being critical about the police, really being critical about the ways that our education system is set up. Um, and when people get to a point where they think, man, this is unacceptable, as a society, it is really hard to walk that back. Yeah. It's really hard to walk that back. And we see that in justice movements um, across the spectrum from, you know, rights of women to uh, queer liberation, trans liberation. Once, once we get past a certain point in culture, even if the politicians haven't gotten there yet, they will. And it will be very difficult to walk it back because the society is no longer accepting of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've done that. I think that we have done that. When I see that the city of Minneapolis has voted to abolish their police department, mm -hmm. when I see that Oakland has voted to remove weaponry from frontline police officers, when I see that Seattle has voted to um, cut the police budget in half, Hamilton has voted to get police out of schools. We already had that vote in the Toronto District School Board. You know, all of these these um, decisions are kind of snowballing around the world 
that is a result of a cultural shift that is going to be so difficult to walk back. Absolutely. And, and these are our wins. And you know what? Probably after uh, hearing this conversation, more people will want to get involved and make a difference. But not everybody can march on the streets to show their support. So what can they do? Particularly, what can they do if they're not decision makers in their yeah. work, for example? That's such a critical question. I think it really uh, depends on you know, what type of power you have in your community. If you're someone who uh, perhaps, yeah, going out on the street is not an option for you. One thing that's really critical is to try to educate yourself as much as possible. If you're hearing calls to defund the police or maybe even abolish the police and you're thinking that sounds really weird, open your mind and allow yourself to get educated on the issues. Just listen, do some reading, See if there is not some sort of reasonableness behind it, because I guarantee you a lot of people have been shocked um, about what they've learned um, uh, about these issues uh, as the last couple months have progressed. And then bring those conversations, bring that knowledge that you uh, have acquired to the places where you exist in the world. You know, mm -hmm. we're all organized in some way, whether that's in our families in a religious congregation, at your work, at your school. Those are all places where you can have conversations with large groups of people. And it's those one-on-one -on -one conversations that really do the job of shifting culture. Sandy, our show is called Seat at the Table. What does a seat at the table mean to you? That's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that sometimes we need seats at the table, but sometimes we need to like destroy the table and create a whole brand new one. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think for something like policing, for me, it's like, I don't want to seat at that table. Like that table has had uh, revolving chairs <laughs> for so many years of people who've just been used and manipulated to justify a system that has ultimately never shown that it has mm. never been able to change. And so just, you know, throw that table in the scrap heap. But when it comes to something like media, you know, that's where a lot of power lies. Mm -hmm. Power to shape a narrative, power to discuss whether or not um, something like anti-blackness is going to be effectively addressed in Canada. Uh, and we need to be in those positions of power in order to really tell the story of what's going on with black communities in this country because the current media landscape has proven that they are unwilling or unable to do so. And so we need to have some of that power. And quite frankly, I think that if we don't get it, let's destroy that table too and create <laughs> our own types of media, you know, because at some point, they're just going to become irrelevant if they don't do, you know, what they're doing now, bringing back seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Well, so don't destroy ours, yeah. please. Don't flip our table. <laughs> don't, don't, don't break our well, table. No, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm I saying that this type of response, yes. uh, bringing back seat at the table, um, prevents that sort of thing from happening. But if right. it's just, you know, like a flavor of the month sort of thing where they're not really invested in you, well, then, you know. And we we'll call you our up. own things. Yes. We'll call you <laughs> yes, up, Sandy, exactly. if, if, if we're let go. Yeah, keep your ringer on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Sandy. worry, I'll be tweeting about it. <laughs> Sandy Hudson, thank you so much. You are the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto, the first Black Lives Matter chapter 
outside of the U.S. Again, mm-hmm. congratulations and thank you for that. And you're also the co-editor of the recent anthology Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. It has been an honor and an education to have you at our table. Thank you very much, Sandy Hudson. Thank you for having me. What a fun discussion. Talk Thanks. to you soon. Thanks. À bientôt. Bye. Merci. Au revoir. So, in the last few months, the notion of defunding the police has become very popular. Yep. And what seemed like a marginalized idea as late as a few months ago is now gaining more and more credibility, not only in the United States, but also here in Canada. I know. And according to a poll, 51% of us are in favor of defunding the police, which I have to tell you, I was very surprised to see the percentage be so high. Yeah, me too. And in late July, for example, Vancouver City Council voted to deprioritize policing as a response to mental health, to sex work, to homelessness and substance use, and to shift that funding to community-based approaches, which is really like one of the pillars of what defunding the police is. Hamilton has pulled the police out of its schools. I mean, the city of Hamilton, not the play on Broadway, um, (laughs) has pulled the police out of its schools and other cities want to do the same. So I have to be honest, Martine, I really had no idea what defunding the police actually meant or implied until preparing for this interview, because I thought that it was just asking to take away funds for the police as a punitive action, right? I Mm -hmm. didn't realize that it was an entire institution that was being challenged. My education about defunding the police really happened after the murder of George Floyd. And recently I saw um, a commercial, a TV commercial uh, from, from the Donald Trump campaign and about defunding the police. And it was nothing more than fear mongering. And unfortunately, what I know is that these types of ads do work mm-hmm. because we live in a society where we're scotch taped to images and we very rarely go beyond the headlines. Go yeah. before the So I feel excited and very lucky that we get to speak to Robin Maynard today, the author of the book, Policing Black Lives. Robin is based in Toronto and she's been an authority on police defunding for years. For Robin, defunding the police is a necessary step towards ultimately abolishing the police altogether. And I cannot wait for her to explain that to us. Absolutely. Welcome to Seat at the Table, Robin. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So what do you mean when you say that you're an abolitionist? Well, abolition uh, in in the contemporary sense Mm -hmm. is a politic of being committed to ending uh, the surveillance of people in our society and the caging and the policing in all forms of people in our society. It's about being geared towards instead creating the conditions towards actually ending harm in our society, towards giving people the conditions that are life affirming, where people have the things that they need, um, like long term housing, like access to food. Um, where economic and social inequalities in our society are addressed meaningfully as opposed to met with policing, as opposed to um, caging the people who represent those social and economic inequalities in our society. You know, the term abolition, of course, is related to slavery, the movement to abolish slavery, mm-hmm. exactly, all across the Americas, right? There's a long-standing historical tradition of enslaved uh, peoples who, of course, stole themselves and liberated themselves of white supporters of Quakers who worked to end the institution of slavery, leading eventually 
to the formal abolition, for example, of Britain and its colonies in 1834, later on in the United States. And of course, first, uh, it needs to be noted, uh, the first abolition of slavery in the world happened in the place that is now called Haiti, right? That this is a long trajectory of, of black organizing uh, for freedom. And if we look to the contemporary vision of what is abolition, it's something that really begins with um, black people who had been incarcerated, who are advocating really an understanding of the ways in which policing and prisons had carried forward many of the legacies of racial violence uh, under slavery into the institutions of policing, into the institutions of prisons. And when did you first come in contact with the idea of abolition? I think that my first contact with the idea of abolition was reading Angela Davis's really important, really powerful book that was called Our Prisons Obsolete. This is a text that did such an incredible and nuanced job of really tracing the legacy of the development of prisons, of policing, of the whole carceral system that we, uh, that we see today as emerging from Uh, the system of chattel slavery, of kinds of uh, controlling and surveilling black communities, of holding black communities captive that were not identical to slavery, but nonetheless really grew out of it and became embedded into the institutions of police and of prisons mm -hmm. in particular. And the book asks what was quite a provocative question in that time, are prisons obsolete? Um, asking us to have the courage to envision a society that did not view caging people as an appropriate solution to social and economic issues, that did not want to disappear um, people who are representative of the kinds of social problems that our society creates. That's interesting because you mentioned Haiti earlier, and when Angela Davis speaks in Haiti, it's always quite the event, and I haven't witnessed it in person, but I've seen um, clips of it, and I don't think I've ever seen her as involved and as excited as when she's in Haiti, because I think she, you know, obviously she recognizes that it, it all started there. So it's it's quite a moment to see her uh, speak in Port-au-Prince. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, once you start to read her work, you realize that also she's drawing on Uh, you know, also what had happened to so many of the black radicals of her time who were incarcerated, who stayed incarcerated, um, that so much of that, that work has, of course, been done by herself, but other, also by people who are behind bars, who've experienced this kind of captivity as a kind of violence and have been decrying this uh, for generations. And there's actually something so powerful that was just published, if you'll, uh, if you'll let me read this quote, that was put out by black prisoners on August 1st in the Halifax Examiner. Um, they write... Is slavery even over when black people clean and work in the kitchens for less than $2 a day inside federal prisons? When our mothers and grandmothers come to visit us and are turned away and accused of bringing in contraband? When we are transferred across the country against our will, when we stand up against unjust conditions? When we have to go on hunger strikes to demand basic human rights? Are we free when little girls are handcuffed in school and arrested? When we can't even get the tools to educate ourselves and free our minds and to make a life for our families? I'm still trying to understand how it would work in a society without police. How does it work? I think it might help if I really break down 
what right now is really being asked in this moment to defund the police towards yeah. the aim of the abolition of police. Um, uh, some of that is related, of course, as we can see really popularly to the idea of shrinking police budgets to the, to, you know, towards the end of eradicating police budgets altogether, looking at how much money as a society we now allocate yeah. to policing. That's $15 billion across the country. That's over a billion dollars in Toronto, a significant portion of Montreal's municipal budget as well. So to shrink that budget and, of course, to actually reallocate those funds to the communities that really need them, who at this point are actually experiencing all kinds of harms that are not being met by policing, like lack of access to transit, like lack of access to decent housing. But it's also about reducing the power and reducing the scope of police over our lives. If we under if we understand that for black communities, for indigenous communities, for communities of people living with mental health issues, that policing being stopped in the streets um, itself is a kind of violence over our lives and working yeah. to minimize that impact, right? Up to 80% of policing in Canada takes place as a result uh, of police responses, sorry, to calls are for things like mental health disturbances, like drug overdose, um, like domestic disputes, all the things that we know are actually exacerbated by the presence of police that are not helped by the presence of police. So it's really about, again, ending uh, that constant police presence, which again, for our communities comes with the risk of arrest, of violence, and even death. Mm -hmm. If we look to the recent uh, deaths of DeAndre Campbell, for example, of Regis Korshinsky-Paquet, mm -hmm. the Afro-Indigenous woman who fell, who fell seven stories to her, death after the police were called to support her, of Chantal Moore, who died in the, con an indigenous woman who died yep. in the context of a wellness check, to say that we actually deserve to have responses to crisis and to harm in our society that are not going to potentially kill us. Robin, I, I mentioned earlier the Donald Trump ad. You have reached the 911 police emergency line. Due to defunding of the police department, we're sorry, but no one is here to take your call. If you're calling to report a rape, Please press 1. To report a murder, press 2. To report a home invasion, press 3. For all other crimes, leave your name and number, and someone will get back to you. Our estimated wait time is currently five days. Goodbye. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Educate us, Robin. Break it down. <laughs> Well, I think, first of all, that ad really is, again, really misdirecting the public into what police actually do. Uh, so much of in the public imaginary of what policing is, is about protecting us from imminent danger, where, again, as I'd reminded us, such a vast majority of what police calls are responding to are really issues that we know could fundamentally be, fundamentally be met better and more appropriately by by so many other kinds of services social society, workers and right yeah. mm -hmm. um just yeah and non-carceral responses right of community informed responses to violence we already know that the police responding to something like a drug overdose means that people are not calling that people are actually dying preventable deaths in terms of of overdose right so it's already misleading us in terms of the idea that police are out there stopping the bad guy and i think i think it's particularly important to name uh, the fact that they mention police as a solution to rape, right? Because that's fundamentally so often one of the questions, what do we do with all the rapists? Where do we put all the rapists? I mean, first of all, I think we need to look at Donald Trump, of course, advancing this, given the, the ongoing allegations of Donald Trump himself as a perpetuator of sexual assault already reminds us that the question, where do we put all the rapists, often ends with in the White House or in positions of power, right? So that's that's one. Well, that's something that's really important to keep in mind. And for my own yeah. self... Um, working with black women, with indigenous women in, in harm reduction who'd experienced violence from their partners, um, going to the police had at times been so degrading and at times violent and at times harmful that we know that 
you know, this is precisely why the vast majority of things like sexual assault and rape already go unreported. And those that are reported, in fact, are very infrequently solved. Um, even, even more, we actually need to understand that the police are often perpetrators of violence, of sexual violence, right? We know that Human Rights Watch cate- uh, mm-hmm. documented horrific abuses of, of the police of Indigenous women and girls in British Columbia. Just recently in Quebec, we saw the CBC that had un- uncovered uh, the allegations, uh, again, of police uh, abuse of sexual assault of, of Indigenous women. We know that in prisons, for example, uh, there was a study that came out in 1994, a government-sponsored study that showed that black women who were exposed to sexual harassment were exposed to sexual harassment and assault by prison staff, right? That they were being forced to perform hard labor in late stages of their pregnancies. They were being divide, uh, denied vitamins that were being given to white women who were pregnant. So we need to understand that police and prisons are not ending the realities of sexual violence and in fact are often the source of that kinds of violence, right? So what we're seeing is a misdirection for so many of our communities. Policing is the exact opposite of safety. And so many of what had been pitched as those kind of reforms and tweaks that would keep people safe, uh, for example, uh, body cams, implicit bias trainings, uh, you know, black heads of police, more diversity within police institutions, for example. I mean, these are all things that since uh, the advent of the BLM movement had been put in place in Minneapolis, the very place where George Floyd was uh, publicly murdered by the police, right? So this is why it's becoming increasingly clear that fundamentally the issue is that the institution itself is the problem. Robin, I've been doing a lot of reading lately on our history to get a better sense of, of really what's going on right now. And it's crazy how we as Canadians do not know about our own history and we pretend that things happen on the south of the border, but that it doesn't happen here. And, and that and that where it's and, it's an Americanization of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in Quebec, we're very in French media. French, yeah. We're we're very good at at saying that. First of all, do you find that uh, French Canada is is switching to the idea? I think that there's always been, both in French and in English Canada, a real resistance to accepting even the very reality of systemic racism, particularly of the reality of anti-Black racism. Um, I think that, though, what this is why I always am careful of trying to separate, for example, French from English Canada, because I would say that in English-speaking provinces like Ontario, you actually have had the admission that anti-Black racism is real. You've had studies that have documented this and named this since, you know, at least the you know, the early 1990s, and yet you still continue to see inaction. And in Quebec, of course, you have, until very recently, the denial even of the existence of systemic anti-Black racism. And yet in both provinces, we continue to see Black people being stopped by the police disproportionately, as the new report on the SPBM has showed, Black people being yeah. killed mm-hmm. by police, uh, you know, in rates that are just absolutely horrific in Montreal, from Anthony Griffin up to Bonnie Jean-Pierre and Pierre Coriolan, we're continuing to see the same Mm -hmm. issue. So I would say that we are beginning to see, I'd say in Quebec, a slight more acceptance of the reality of systemic racism, but what actually matters far more than acknowledging uh, and even conducting reports and surveys is actually changing the conditions that allow this to exist in the first place. Mm. Uh, Robin, the show's called Seat at the Table. What does it mean for you to have a seat at the table? 
I mean, I think it's one thing to have a seat at the table, but it's really important that we ask, uh, you know, what is that table oriented toward? I'm not going to be sitting at a table, uh, depending who's on the menu, right? If it's a seat at the table to talk about continually putting more and more money into police reforms that we know don't work, then that's not a table that I want to be at. If it's at a table of the really powerful community organizers and people who are leading us in this really important anti-racist struggle at this moment, then that's a table that I will very happily sit at, right? So I think it's a question of some tables need to be flipped and abolished altogether. (laughs) Yes, Robin Maynard is the author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. She's currently a Vanier Scholar at the University of Toronto. Thank you. Merci. Thank Thank you you, so much. Seat at the Table is hosted and produced by me, Martine Saint-Victor. And also by me, Isabelle Rassicot. The show is also produced by Melissa Fundira, Eunice Kim, and Justin Doucet. Our mixer is Crystal Duhem. Technical work this week was done by Steve Côté and Marielle Momini. Our senior producer is Tina Verma. And the executive producer of CBC Podcast is Arf Nurani. You can also reach us on Facebook at CBC Seat at the Table or tweet us. And don't forget to use the hashtag SeatCBC. That's right. Until next time, au revoir. revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.